Justin, we'll just get you to uh, say your name and sort of summarize or give us a log line about what we're about to hear. My name is Justin Brake. I'm editor uh, of The Independent and a reporter. In this episode, we go to Labrador, to Happy Valley Goose Bay in central Labrador. Um, that's a place that has a very high rate of homelessness or of transient people, as they say in, in Happy Valley Goose Bay, folks who live in other communities in Labrador who end up in Happy Valley Goose Bay for various reasons and then end up unhoused and in some cases unsheltered, living in the trails of the town's uh, trail network. The thing that caught people's attention, like I think finally, is, you know, you'd, you'd see these little snippets of, in the news and they'd say, people are living in the trails in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And then you'd get a number to be 60 or 80 or something like that. Like we wanted to find out what was actually going on there because it didn't seem reliable, you know, or trustworthy. Yeah. Yeah, Justin, I, I just got back from, like I mentioned, I was just up in Labrador working and I spent most of my time in Goose Bay. And um, I drove by a clearing pretty frequently saying, honk if you don't want the shelter here. And I was really taken aback. I thought it was so aggressive. Um, were, were you there when that sign went up? I I wasn't there when it It was already up when I got there. And I arrived in like late August. Um, and I actually interview the man who put them up, uh, who's a local business owner, um, in my other episode from Labrador. Okay, well, we're going to hit play. Let's, uh, let's get into this. Here in Happy Valley Goose Bay, there are added barriers many face in finding and keeping a safe refuge. And they're at the heart of an ongoing debate in the central Labrador town where around half the residents identify as Indigenous. Housing doesn't exist in a vacuum. I know there are many reasons why people end up in the streets or in a shelter or, in the case of Happy Valley Goose Bay, in the trails of the town's wooded areas, where I am right now, hoping to find someone to speak with. It's a mid-August day, and it's overcast, but dry. I parked my car and headed into the trails. It's pretty warm, so after a while I have to take my sweater off. I spend a good 45 minutes walking the sandy paths, but I don't find people. Instead... I find places, places where people once stayed, maybe still are staying. There doesn't seem to be anybody around here now, but I found a kind of a lean to like a, a couple of uh, logs leaned up and tied to another couple trees with a tarp over it. And it looks like probably somebody was sleeping there last night. There's uh, some debris on the ground and a sweater, a lighter. And the way the plants were bent over under the tarp, it looks like they were just bent because they weren't dead. I decide I'll try again tomorrow. Tonight, I'm visiting another place that is ground zero of the homelessness crisis in Labrador. It's a place I've only ever seen from the outside during my visits here. Over the past seven years, I've covered some pretty big stories in Happy Valley Goose Bay. The Muskrat Falls resistance, Justin Trudeau's apology to residential school survivors, and the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls national inquiry hearings. But I always stayed in the hotel next door. Not this time. 
The Labrador Inn is an older, run-down, two-story building with a few dozen rooms. But when you walk in the front door, you quickly notice this isn't like most hotels. Immediately to your right is a table, and seated at that table is a security guard, maybe two. Not the imposing kind, just someone in a red shirt keeping an eye on things. And behind the front desk, a receptionist. You'll have to speak up, though, because this receptionist is behind a pane of plexiglass. That's because the Labrador Inn is not just a hotel. For the past three years, it's doubled as an emergency shelter for unhoused and so-called transient people. Those who are from the town or who come here to find refuge. Other journalists have come to the lab inn to interview people, but I'm staying here so that I can get to know some of the folks living here. Before we go on, I should tell you why I decided to come here in the first place. Incidents of indecent acts, public drunkenness, trespassing, and loitering. This Facebook Live video was a big part of the reason. Let counsel be clear. This is a provincial and federal government's responsibility. This is former Happy Valley Goose Bay Mayor Wally Anderson. He's flanked by several other members of town council. It was recorded in June 2021, after the town had been asking the province for help to address the housing and homelessness crisis for a few years. Residents and businesses are living and operating in fear. Daily, our seniors, our children, witness illegal activities such as public drunkenness, and deplorable acts, sexual acts, rape. They see people passed out or convulsing. Residents and business report trespassing and damage to personal and private property, damages to their storefronts and properties, and assaults on staff and customers. Our community trails are littered with campsites where these individuals congregate. As a result, the residents no longer feel safe utilizing our community trail system. Residents are afraid inside their own homes. It's true that residents have had negative experiences, and the council's concern around public safety are legit. The thing is, that's not the whole picture. For me, it, it doesn't scare me to encounter individuals on the street whether it's a group or not, uh, but just the presence of these people seems to result in a fear response from other folks that I know. And it's, it's pretty extreme um, to the point of like seeing comments about if I saw a group of people walking down the road, um, I wouldn't be breaking for them, I'd be hitting the gas. That's a real thing that somebody says in response to homelessness and addictions being visible in our community. Goose Bay resident Jade Ratchwall is a member of the Nunatuavut Community Council. She sent the mayor and council a letter calling their statement harmful, racist, and unacceptable. I tracked her down at her work, the Labrador Friendship Centre. She told me she wrote the letter as a concerned resident. A lot of people live with this fear that they've expressed that they aren't safe because of the people who are struggling and the really complex issues that face some of our community members. 
And at the same time, those of us who have a bed to sleep in and a roof over our head are less at risk than those who don't. And as somebody who has that privilege, I see my role as to look out for, um, be supportive of, and certainly not to view other less privileged community members as a threat to myself. Jade wrote that letter two and a half years ago. She never got a response. Jade's thoughts and her 2021 letter to the council focus on an important fact. Most of these homeless people are Innu and Inuit. I noticed I caught myself saying these homeless people as, you know, in reference to the folks who are unhoused. And I, you know, deliberately try not to, you know, use that term homeless people. I think in... um, in, use, in saying it so many times, you're always looking for a different way to say it, but uh, I caught myself there, and that's how easy it is to sort of objectify objectify people in a way. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to make a note of that. Why are Indigenous people ending up in the trails and in the shelters of Happy Valley Goose Bay? The closest Indigenous community is only about a half-hour drive away, Shehajit Inu First Nation. I know someone there who'd be a good person to talk to about this. Simeon Chakapesh is actually from Natwashish. I bumped into him and his family a few weeks earlier in Newfoundland. I hadn't talked to him for several years. He's a former chief of Natwashish, which is the other Inu community in Labrador. But for now, he's living in Shehajit because he has cancer and he needs regular access to the hospital in Goose Bay for treatment. But he's eager to talk about what I've come here for, housing in Innu communities. I've been battling with the home situation and uh, even including Davis Island and that we had a poor housing there. And assume uh, when relocation became reality uh, and and thinking that we will have a, a really nice homes and good homes and to live in. Okay, some quick background here because we're talking about colonization, so we can't talk about issues that Innu face outside of that context. Innu live across Labrador and northern Quebec, and the Innu of Labrador have never ceded their lands to Canada or to the province. They are still fighting to have their rights respected. Even though colonization of Newfoundland and Labrador began in the 1500s, it wasn't until the 1900s that the Innu way of life was radically disrupted by settlers. Among other things, that led to an epidemic of addiction, including among Innu children. And that came to a head in the early 1990s. In 1992, six children died in a house fire in Davis Inlet. Then, the following year, a video was made public of children huffing gas in an abandoned house in the wintertime. In the video, the children could be heard saying they want to die. Both stories made international headlines. And at the same time, the Innu brought a complaint to the Canada Human Rights Commission, alleging that their treatment at the hands of the provincial and federal governments constituted discrimination and infringed on their Aboriginal rights and their human rights. The embarrassment of all the attention brought to the federal and provincial governments led them to build an entirely new community and resettled the Mujuao Inu there. That meant running water and new homes. The man who took that video of the kids huffing gas 
Simeon Chakapesh, who then helped oversee the move from Davis Inlet to Natwashish. Two decades later, he says housing is still a major problem. Right now, some of the homes are very overcrowded, and uh, we try to uh, accommodate our people uh, building some homes, and some of the homes had to tear down because of, uh, of the climate over up north, and uh, they couldn't uh, keep up with the, uh, with the temperature because some of my homes are really, really cold. And Chakabesh says the houses in Nadwashish were poorly built, and they aren't holding up to Labrador's weather. Did the federal government not learn its lesson from Davis Inlet? Resettling an entire community, giving them hope, and then neglecting to provide adequate housing on an ongoing basis? That seems to be the case. How do I phrase this? How is the government getting away with this? Just a lack of awareness? If you look at any Indigenous community, Métis, Inuit, or First Nations community, um, if you've been following along or if you go back and if you were to be able to have access to all of their documents, records, communications, especially with the government, I mean, every community that I've been to and have spoken to people from Indigenous community in Canada, I mean, they have like there are literally jobs on band like w- on band councils where people are just constantly filing applications, writing letters, appealing for funding for specific areas, including housing. It is uh, an old issue that may be addressed now if the political will is there. And we know that in this country (laughs) and in our province, we know that the way that political will um, is created or the way that it manifests is when there's public pressure and when there's a risk that decision makers won't get reelected. So I would say that how, you know, to answer that question, how the government is getting, how is the government getting away with this? I would say that um, media, journalists and media have, you know, sh- uh, shoulder some of that responsibility for failing to meaningfully, adequately report on Indigenous communities. Um and the government certainly is accountable because they're the ones who are supposed to make sure that people's human rights are upheld, including the right to housing. Uh, and and the Canadian public, civic society. I mean, the more we care about issues, the more likely we are to pressure policymakers to do something different to ad- address um, you know these issues. So I would say that that the combination of those three things and those areas of accountability are, you know, the reason why the government still gets away with it. I decide to fly north to Natwashish, a community of about a thousand people. When I land, I touch base with an Innu man I spent time with at the Labrador Inn. Richard Pashtin isn't homeless. He was at the Lab Inn because he was accompanying someone to Goose Bay for medical care. And he told me when that person got out of hospital, instead of returning to Natwashish, they stayed in Goose Bay, where it's easier to feed their addiction. Pashtin picks me up on quad and shows me around the community. He takes me to one of his favorite spots, the Elders Gathering Site, where Inu elders from Natwashish and other Inu communities come together each year to strengthen their ties share teachings, and try to offer some hope for the youth. Pashtin is candid about his own struggles. He tells me he left Davis Inlet for treatment in Northwest River when he was a teenager. When he got out, 
the community had relocated to Natwashish. Yeah, I was there for six months, almost seven months. Treatment for, can I ask what for? Uh, uh, yes, uh, for, uh, for sniffing gas. I used to sniff gas when I was a kid, yeah. teenager. Yeah. And is that still uh, going on here? Uh, still going on here, yeah. yeah. Is it any better than it used to be? Uh, no, it's getting worse here sometimes. Yeah. More than two decades later, Inu and Labrador still experience some of the highest suicide rates in the world. Addiction still ravages the communities. Even in Natwashish, where alcohol has been banned since 2008. Pashtin is living proof that the good things happening in his community, like the elders gathering, are having a positive impact. And those things need to be celebrated. But the reality is, many do what they need to do to numb the pain. And that can be easier in Goose Bay. And, um, that's why they moved down there, just to get... Just to get more cheaper drinks. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see any solutions to that issue? Like, what what do you think could help benefit the community or help the community with people feeling like they gotta leave to to go drink? I think uh, if there's no bylaw, there'll be more drinking and the problem like, oh, probably like will be worse. Mm-hmm. It's better than that. That's why the people like moving down there is. They, they like it down there, like they get more easy to get, get liquor down there. So are there any, is there any supports in the community for people who are fighting addiction? Like, uh, there is a health commission here, but people don't want to attend to go there, like get help. My mom is an addiction counselor down there. Oh. That's the reason I need to go to treatment, just to get my health, get help and get back on my feet again. Yeah. Yeah, I need, I need to do that really bad and I've been drinking since I was 13. And I'm 30, I need to quit that. And I'm still struggling, I'm still like, 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 what do you call that? Uh, have that feeling, eh? like, craving or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm tired of it. Pashtin tells me he's on a waiting list to get treatment for his addiction, and that he'll have to leave Natwashish. Well, if I get help, if I get clean, then I'll be all right, you know, know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I know where, where to start when I won't leave good. <laughs> While some Inu end up in Goose Bay due to their addiction or for other health reasons, some also live and work there. Maybe they go to college or university there. Whatever the reason Inu end up in Goose Bay, there's a very good chance that their housing situation there is better than back home. Pashtin tells me his parents' house was in really bad shape, but that it's under renovation now. It's almost finished. And my 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 parents' house was really mold in, inside the wall still, even in the basement. My mom used to get sick, we used to send out, and that's the reason why the houses are some like they're moldy. Mold in the houses causing or exacerbating major health problems. If people in the community are living with mold, that is a big deal. In 2019, I was a reporter for the Aboriginal People's Television Network. And that February, I traveled to Cat Lake First Nation in northern Ontario. Home inspections found that around 100 houses in the Ojibwe community had severe mold. Unfortunately, the inspections were too late for a woman named Nashi Umbash, a 48-year-old mother and grandmother who died just days before I arrived in the community. Her family said her death was due to complications from living in a mold-infested home. Three days after Umbash's death, the federal government promised 57 more housing units to the community. 
Is the same thing happening in Natwashish? Are people literally stuck in mold-infested homes and getting sick from it? If there's one person here who knows, it's Chief John Nui, who I reached out to before coming to Natwashish. He's been chief for seven years, so he knows what's going on. He invited me to the band council office. And his outlook on housing? It's not good. We have a shortage of houses here in our community. There's about 100, close to 100 people on the waiting list. And since my term started 2016, you know, we have built 45 homes. You know, there's eight more on the way. Uh, so it still hasn't put any dent on the waiting list. There's more people, young families are coming in and know that they all want houses. And there's um, not only them, uh, it's only you have to look at um, the people that are overcrowding. You know, um, there's a lot of people that are cramped up in one, one house, you know, two bedrooms, uh, not three. You know, those, those houses are still a lot of families, a lot of young kids, you know, so there's no privacy there. You know, so those, those are the kind of things that uh, people need to be aware of. When they come it's here. not just the overcrowding, though. Nui says many of the houses themselves were built poorly, including his own. You know, there's a there's a outer part that where the shingles are not siding, and there's a insulation. Inside is only jeep rock, so mm-hmm. it's there's no insulation at all. There is insulation, and and I guess I guess they know that the the, the plastic part, and there's a what do you call a jeep rock. There's yeah. only four parts that got the. I can't, like, if somebody rips off those uh, sidings, mm-hmm. they can poke through, uh, I guess, uh, through the jeep rock. Oh. That's how, that's how, uh, like, easy it is, you yeah. know, like. There's no plywood there? Nothing at all, nothing at all. And, and uh, how many houses are like that here? Uh, probably all of them, except those new houses that, uh, that were built. Oh. Yeah, my house is like that, and I guess that's where some of the draft comes in. The windows are never red. Uh, Replaces a lot of draft. Nui says there are two waiting lists for housing. One for renovations that has at least 50 to 60 names on it, and another list for new homes. That waiting list? Upward of 100 families. The population in Natwashish is only around 1,000, so 45 new homes over the past seven years may sound like a lot, but the population is growing and the Inu's resources can't match the demand. So with the lists that you're talking about, like when people get on the list, how are they prioritized? We usually uh, you know, look at the, the, uh, the families with the large, large number of kids, you know, and people that are staying in one house, uh, you know, that are overcrowding. And we also look at the people that have, uh, you know, you know medical conditions. If they can't stay here, then we move them to Goose Bay. That's another thing that we have moved a lot of people up to Goose Bay because uh, we don't have those uh, resources that the Goose Bay has. So that's why they moved up there. So uh, I guess that will free up some space, uh, you know, uh, for a lot of people. But uh, at the same time, they know they own, they don't own those houses. They're just staying there until they're ready to come back kind of thing. So the list is prioritizing, I guess, in a way uh, with uh, larger families first. Nui shares the names of a few community members he says may be interested in talking to me about housing. One of those names was Angela Gregoire, a young Innu woman who works at the school here. She lives in a three-bedroom split-level home. 
one that sounds like the houses Simeon Chakapesh was telling me about. Well, first I told you about this door around the porch and the tiles around here. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, when you look down here, and winter is coming, right? It's going to be cold, so the door needs to be Gregoire lives with seven others, including her mother, who she says is sick from the mold. She used to have her own bedroom, but she moved out when water started dripping down on her from the ceiling. Now she sleeps in the living room with her boyfriend, her mother, her stepfather, and her little brother. Her other brothers occupy the two other rooms. This is the bathroom here. And um, as you like, take this and tiles, there was mold growing in the bathroom. I have to clean all my stuff every day over and over again just to keep it clean. And I I really need help with this because I don't really want my mom to get any sicker from the mold. She has trouble breathing at nights and every day and at nights when she's sleeping. And it hurts me to see her like this at nights and when she has to get up in the middle of the nights, at late nights, and where she has to go to the hospital and then she gets sent out and then next thing you know, it happens again. Gregoire says her family's on that list Chief Nui was talking about. At some point, her home may be renovated, but they don't know when or even if that'll happen. Before something happens, you never know. I could lose my mom from her sickness and her health from that thing. It's been there for years and never has been fixed. And I'm trying my hardest to help her with that. Back at the elders' gathering site in the hills above Natwashish, Pashtin tells me more about his healing journey. Like the people always uh, talk about in old ways, and they teach you in good ways, like... Like they talk about that in ways and they teach you how to respect respect yourself and the animals and the people and your community. And that's how I learned from them. We head back to the community and stop near the school, where some children are riding a quad in a sand pit. They look happy and free. They used to do that all the time there. They used to do that? Oh, yeah. A couple of them drive over and ask us if we have any water. We give them a bottle and chat for a few minutes. You got a half a tank, my friend. As I listen back to the sounds of the kids playing, I can't help but think of something else Chief Nui told me. He said that the state of the houses is even making children sick causing or contributing to things like rashes and skin infections. So when inspectors were in the community last year to look at houses, Nui says they showed them the conditions that children are living in. The band council thought that was proof enough that renovations to houses that are making kids sick should be covered under Jordan's principle. In 2016, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found that the Government of Canada's approach to services for First Nations children was discriminatory. One of the ways to fix that is to uphold Jordan's principle 
a legal principle that was developed to make sure that First Nations children get the services they need when they need them. Nui says the band applied to have some of the houses where children were living in unsafe conditions renovated under Jordan's principle. The government rejected it. To me, you know, a child needs a, a, a roof over his head to protect by, you know, uh, whatever needs to be done. But also the parents, you know, had to be part of the play as well. So what happens when the houses are contaminated with mold? Sometimes skin infections and sometimes on children. If they get, a, I guess, a skin infection and they're sent out, the other people from outside would look at it that they're being neglected in, in, in a healthy way. And they will call CSSD for us, you know, let, you know, this child wasn't cared enough, so, you know, it should be, you know, get some protection for the baby. So that's what I'm trying to avoid, you know, why not, you know, proactive in these activities and these issues? Here's the thing. This vicious cycle for Innu and other Indigenous peoples, created and continued by colonization, it's not exactly breaking news. Innu have been telling us for decades that they need better supports and services to address these issues. But they've also been fighting for the very thing that will, in the long term, help them break free of colonialism's stranglehold. Their land. Nidasinan, the Innu's unceded territory and its resources, which have sustained them for thousands of years. The problems didn't arise until settlers disrupted their way of life, setting in motion a chain of events that has entrenched Inu in those cycles that for many seem impossible to escape. Churchill Falls flooded Inu hunting grounds and burial sites. Muskrat Falls flooded and destroyed more Inu territory. Think of the billions in wealth being extracted from the lands that the Innu never handed over to the Crown. Newfoundland would be in much worse shape if it weren't for Labrador, and if it weren't for what we're doing to, and taking from, the Innu. Yet in the community that Canada built for them, they can't even have decent and safe housing. Amid all of this, Innu have successfully fought to retake control of child welfare, so we stop scooping their children. They have a say in what their youth learn in school, they're passing on their language. And they have cultural programming that helps them pass on teachings and knowledge to youth. Nothing happens overnight. But housing? That impacts every part of our lives. It's hard to thrive in anything if we don't have a safe place to call home. So why is this allowed to happen in Natwashish and Sheheji? That's what I asked the federal government. Their response? A comprehensive housing assessment of 216 houses in Natwashish is almost done. And Indigenous Services Canada says that any future action and investment will be based on those results. We started this episode in Happy Valley Goose Bay, in the trails, and at the Labrador Inn. But to get some answers as to why Indigenous people are ending up homeless in central Labrador, we had to drive to Sheheji, then fly hundreds of kilometres to Natwashish. And that's where we learned about some of the horrific challenges Innu and Labrador face when it comes to housing. 
Now I'm back in Happy Valley Goose Bay, walking those trails once again. This time I meet some folks, four people from Nadwishish. I spend an hour with them in the cold late summer drizzle that soaked through some of their clothes. I'm not going to play the recording though. They're intoxicated and can't consent to an interview. One thing is clear though, it would be very difficult for them to find a place with a roof where they can drink or self-medicate and feel safe. So for now, the trails in the woods of Happy Valley Goose Bay, in the rain, is that place. Lock and Key is produced by Olivia Ball. It's edited by Lou Quinton, and I'm your co-host, Andy Bullman. Our music is by Jake Nickel, and our art is by Shan Lee Pomeroy. Thanks to Tom Baird and Sarah Swain. Justin Brake is the editor of The Independent. For more in-depth stories about the housing crisis, go to theindependent.ca. And a big thank you to everyone who shared their stories with us over this past year. The Lock and Key podcast received funding from the Community Housing Transformation Center, the Center. However, the views expressed are the personal views of the author, and the Center accepts no responsibility for them.